psalm of, rep of repentance or a prayer of repentance. Uh, in my, I don't know how many of you have the uh, New King James or whichever version you might prefer, uh, but the title of the psalm itself is a prayer of repentance. I couldn't really think of a better way to put it, and so that's just sort of how I left it. Uh, when I was reading a book uh, this week in preparation, I was reading it uh, called The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. He was an old Puritan uh, preacher in uh, the British Isles, one who I admire a good deal. Uh, I, his book is excellent. It's one of the finest books on the subject that I've ever read. Um, and he divides the several different components to repentance, in which I think you see very well here in Psalm 51. He talks about uh, the sight of sin, knowing that there's sin uh, in place, that you must have sorrow for sin, that you must be able to confess sin, or that there is not, must be a confession of it, rather. And there must be shame for sin, there must be hatred for sin, and then also a turning from sin. So you see each of those points in each. Now, it's not going to be a six-point sermon, uh, but uh, there are certainly six different components that we will look at when we uh, come to this passage. Psalm 51 is like seven other psalms, Psalm 6, Psalm 32, 38, uh, 102, and 130, 143, known as penitential psalms. In other words, these are psalms of repentance, of a, of a wrong done. And as we'll see here in a few moments, this psalm in particular uh, has a, partic has a uh, very certain force to it uh, in David's life. It is a psalm of David that comes uh, certainly at the end of his years, um, and we'll get into that here momentarily. I like what some commentators have said, particularly G. Campbell Morgan, uh, that this psalm shows a stupendous wonder of the everlasting mercy of our God, and as we again, delve into the text, we'll see just how great is the mercy of our God. And so I divided this in uh, following points, very similar to that of Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Uh, we're going to be looking at a cry for mercy in light of sin, confession of sin, uh, and cleansing of sin. And so therefore, our, the main proposition that we'll be considering tonight is that the Christian life is one that is a repentant life. And so I think that's most appropriate for us uh, in light of this psalm, and so that's what we'll be going for. So we'll read now uh, in Psalm 51. We'll be going to verse 9. I'll begin where it says, To the chief musician, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Verse 1 says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness." According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we come again to you in prayer and ask that you will bless these truths to our heart, that it will be nourishing to us and that we may grow in our knowledge of you, that we may leave this place better than when we came before, having heard your word. Lord, be with me as I even bring this word tonight. Uh, Help me, Lord, by your spirit. I need your help. I ask this in your son's name and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. I, um, when I was uh, much younger than I am today, uh, I was very much into these, uh, this thing called Lego sets. They were, uh, you know, things that I, you know, liked to piece together and build ships and build buildings. And they had these little mini figures. And uh, there was one particular set that I had in particular uh, that was uh, kind of like a castle. Almost, it, uh, and I had a few young friends that um, who were my pastor's kids at the time, and that's what makes this story more profound, um, because they had a very similar set, and it turns out that there were a few pieces, a few little uh, mini figures that I that I was missing, and uh, when I was at their house one evening, I noticed that they had mini figures that for the set that I knew I was missing, and that I knew that I wanted, and that I knew that I had to have. And what did I do? Well, I knew that I had to have them, so I took them <laughs> and uh, was just tried to be really cool about it and just sort of slide out. And they didn't notice until that night when I got back and one of the pastor's sons actually was about maybe 12 at the time, I would say. And he said, I understand that you were here and I don't know that you really meant anything by it. Of course I did, but he said, I didn't know, don't think you meant anything by it, but I'm missing some pieces that I think maybe... You had taken them by mistake. Well, the next day I ended up going over to their house to return them and said, oh yeah, I just, me being me, lied and said I, uh, I didn't mean to take them. They just sort of happened to be in my pocket, as kids will say. Now, in, in a very similar vein, we find David stole something very dear to one of his own soldiers, a very trusted soldier even, his wife, and he brought damnation even upon the entire uh, nation. We see in 2 Samuel chapter, chapters 11 and 12, which is really the preface for this psalm, which is why I read to the chief musician a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. It's very important to start with that for uh, the following reason. Uh, David was, of course, as we know, the king of Israel. He was the second king of the nation right after King uh, Saul. There were two kings with S's in that name. So Saul was before Solomon, and there was Saul, and there was David. Uh, And unlike David, or at least unlike Saul, David was called, what, a man after God's own heart. And there's a very particular reason why he did that, and I think this psalm encapsulates that, but... What comes before it and what makes this psalm necessary is the very fact that what happened uh, in David's life was that when the kings had gone out to war, he stayed back. And that sort of signifies uh, David's age. He'd certainly gotten up up there in years, and the war and the battles had certainly tired him by this point in his life, and so he stayed back. Now, I don't know how many of you watched the movie David and Bathsheba that was filmed in 1951. Uh, that starred a young Gregory Peck, and I can't remember the other, Susan Hayward. 
in which they, it was almost like a, a, a romance, a soap opera of sorts, in which this young guy, this suave sort of King David came in and uh, had that episode with Bathsheba. Well, we know from the text of scripture that that's not exactly how it panned out. David was much older. He used his power, his influence, really to, and out of a motivation of lust, to seduce Bathsheba into this sin. And what ended up happening was in order to cover up the sin, right after David had learned that Bathsheba became pregnant uh, by virtue of his sin, he called Uriah, his, one of his soldiers, in to come in and lay with her so that as though it would be seen that, Uri- that it was Uriah's child. Well, we know from the story that Uriah himself did not go in. He didn't see it was fitting for him to do that, knowing that the rest of his soldiers, the rest of his fellow soldiers, rather, uh, were out in their tents going out to battle and that they didn't even get to have the privileges that he had, at least in this moment. And so what does David do? He, in order to further cover up his sin, he sends Uriah back onto the battlefield with a letter, I, if I can remember the story correctly, with a letter to Joab saying, basically put him on the front lines so that, and leave him there so that he might be killed and therefore we can go on. And the text says that this thing greatly displeased the Lord. Now, I don't know how many of you uh, think about disobeying your parents about, or at least when you were young, if, when you would disobey your parents, if that, that ever really displeased them. Of course, we know now that it displeases parents very greatly when their children disobey the, disobeys them, and it grieves them greatly when they have to discipline them. Well, that's exactly what ended up having to happen to David. Because some months later, this, there seems to be a passage of time in David's life at this point because the baby had already been born by Bathsheba. And this is when Nathan the prophet comes in and gives him the story of what? There was a, a man who had a sheep, and the man, when he, the rich man also saw the sheep and killed it, and it grieved the man who owned the sheep. And David said, in, in a rather outrageous way, he says, uh, well, somebody, we should do something about this. We should go kill that man. And, and Nathan the prophet convicts him and says, David, you are the man. David, being the good king and having the book of the law that he was supposed to have, knows there's a very particular reality that's about to come his way. In the Old Testament law, there were, uh, there were maybe more than two, but I know that these two particular sins were worthy of the death penalty, adultery and murder. And what did David just commit? Adultery and murder. And so what was his plot in lot in life at this point, death. We know from the Apostle Paul in Romans that the wages of sin is death, and we know that even no one does what is right in God's sight, for we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so that ought to convict us, therefore, that anybody who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ can sin and sin greatly. David, a man after God's own heart, certainly could do that, and I uh, can think of many instances of which this is true, but we don't need to go into them, only merely to point out that David knows exactly what his sin requires, death. And that's what he says here when he says, Have mercy upon me, O God. He appeals to, in verse 1 also, the 
loving kindness, according to your loving kindness, according to your multitude of mercies, really his chesed love, God's chesed love. It's a never-ending love. In other words, he knows that the only way that he can escape the death penalty that is surely to come to his life is by an appeal to the mercy and grace of God. In a rather particular way, we don't usually think of sin in this way. I mentioned earlier that when we go out and preach the Great Commission, we need to preach the whole counsel of God. We need to preach gospel and law, grace and law, really. And the reason for that is in part because not many preachers do that. Well, the preachers that often do that, what turns a lot of people off also, not only is the fact that they are possibly being convicted of sin, but they really don't know what their sin is actually doing. David knows that his sin that he has sight of, that he, is, he sees, is really, as the Westminster Confession or Shorter Catechism puts it, as a uh, transgression of or want of conformity unto the law of God. Basically what that means is, yes, in one sense, sin is breaking God's law, but in another sense, it's failing to do those things which the law requires. And not only did David fail to do the things which the law of God requires, but he outright, out and out, broke it. And so that's what, he, uh, what causes him to take sight of sin, knowing its penalty. And so I can ask, do we have the sight of the severity of sin and what it requires? I would venture to say that among most evangelicals today, they don't, particularly with how they approach worship, with how they approach the Christian life, how much wickedness and unholiness is usually associated with many Christians, particularly, I would say, and this is not true of all young Christians, but the fact of the matter is that most young Christians live sinful, wicked, and unholy lives. I'll give a great uh, illustration of that. I was looking at a Pew Research poll where about one-third of young evangelicals know longer the Bible to believe the word of God, be the word of God. And that's an important point because this next statistic shows that roughly 52% of younger evangelicals don't believe that so-called gay marriage is sinful. So at least you can see uh, a third of younger evangelicals are being honest and saying that they don't believe the word of God but we know the rest of them that rounds out the 52% at least deny its sufficiency and deny that the fact that the Bible has anything to say about one's morality. One of the things that we need to do as a part of discipleship, as I made mention earlier this morning, is the fact that when we teach the whole counsel of God, we need to teach people exactly what sin is so that they know that when they've sinned and when they've offended God, that they might have sight of it, but also so not only that they have sight of it, but that they must confess it. And that brings us into verses 3 through 6. Part of confession of sin means that we also have to have sorrow for sins. He says, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me, he says in verse 3. Now, what he says here is most profound, and my sin is always before me. Most people, whenever they get caught for their wrongdoings, are usually more afraid of the penalty that is going to come from it, not really the sin that actually is the offense. Uh, I would venture to say that, at least this was so for me in my own life, that whenever I did something wrong and that I knew was against what the Bible taught, I was not so, and when I was caught about it, it wasn't so much the sin that, I w that bothered me, rather it was the fact that I got caught. Uh, indeed, whenever 
many pe- when a lot of people sin, that's usually their knee-jerk reaction. If they have a true sense of the holiness of God, and that's what we'll have to come to in a second, the holiness of God, we know that we're not to be so much sorry for the sin of being, or being caught in the sin, but rather the one whom we are offending in our sin. As I made mention earlier in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it is a breaking of God's law, and sin, therefore, is much more than a mistake. Sin is a, is a wretched offense. It's, it's something that permeates our entire being, as we'll see in verse 5. And it's in light of this that David says, against you and you only have I sinned. There's a double emphasis there in the Hebrew. Uh, sometimes there's another, instances, another instance of this happening in uh, Genesis, when God tells Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, in the Hebrew, the word for death is usually brought in twice. And it's usually there to add emphasis on, you will die, die. Really, you will surely die. Well, in the same vein here, we see that it is against God and God only that David has sinned. Now, the question might be, well, Didn't he sin against Uriah and Bathsheba? Didn't he sin against the whole nation by his sin plunging them into uh, chaos as we see throughout the rest of David's life? Well, of course, that is absolutely true. He did sin against these uh, other actors in the entire narrative. But the source of the the real ultimate offense or offendee really in this whole lot is God. Because as I made mention, it's God's law that is being broken. It's not just as though God's like, oh, shoot, that's just a mistake. You can do better next time. No, sin really does require death. As Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is indeed death. And it really encapsulates for us the holiness of God. We see in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees the angels coming and descending, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts and the whole earth is full of his glory. And what does he say after that? He says, Woe unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And so, in the same vein, the same sense in the depth of his own sin that Isaiah has is what we see that David has. He's done this evil in his sight. He knows that on the to the letter of the law. That, if, that God, if he were to so execute justice against him, that he would be found just when he speaks and blameless when he judges. Most people tend to think that whenever we're talking about salvation, I, I had several friends and former co-workers uh, that would believe, well, I think generally I'm a good person, and so long as I'm a good person that, and I believe in God, well, that, that's going to be okay. Well, unfortunately, that's not okay. Uh, we all know, we should know that, uh, as Jesus says in John 3, that we prefer the darkness to the light. We st- in that we stand condemned already. Uh, really, because we are in the sins of which we once walked, if we're not in Christ, what, hap- what means, that means is we are under God's wrath. And so that before you were converted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were standing under God's wrath. And because you sinned against his law, standing in Adam. When Adam sinned, he was representing you, and therefore you sinned and continue on in sin. God sees Adam's sin in you, and that is what what deserves the wrath of God. The sin in your life that is imputed to you 
by Adam. And so we can't help but cry to the mercy and appeal to the loving kindness of the Lord in order to save us. Because it's only by his grace that we can be saved. And David even knows, and David even knows that because he says when he, when he uh, gets to verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make known to me, make me know, to know your wisdom, or make me to know wisdom. You see two things happening here as part of David's confession. Um, not only has he had a great sorrow for sin, and we need to recognize again that Christians must be sorry for their sin, but they also must have a sense in which their sin is pervasive in their whole beings. It's, it's, there's a real depth to it that David's noting here. From this verse, we usually get the, the uh, doctrine of original sin, that as I mentioned earlier, Adam's sin, we stand in Adam, it is imputed to us, and so that as we are born and continue to live and live and live, unless we are in Christ, we're sinners. We stand under uh, that way. It's our inner being, it's our very nature to be sinful in that way, and that all the more reason that we need God's forgiveness and grace. But... On the other hand, we see here in verse 6, he says, you desire truth in the inward part. So if we ourselves in our inner being are sinful, we know that we can never do exactly what God desires, at least unless we have the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, when when we are found in him, gives us his spirit to dwell in us, to enable us to be sanctified, to be holy. The confession, or the catechism, rather, again, when it defines sanctification, which is really the process by which we are made holy, its aim is to renew the whole man after the image of God so that he may, so that he may be enabled to more and more die unto sin and live unto righteousness, to do the things that God would have him do. And so we see this tension here. It's a... Uh, different sides of the same coin. On the one hand, we are sinful, and on the other hand, we know what God desires. And so what, ha- what do we need to do in light of that, or what's needed in light of that? Well, that gets us into our third point here in verses 7, 8, and 9, that we need to be cleansed from sin. We need to be cleansed from sin. Sin must be purged that we might enjoy communion with God. He says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me. And I shall be whiter than snow. In Leviticus chapter 14, verses 4, 6, and 49, and then again in Numbers chapter 19, uh, there, is a, there are particular purification laws for lepers. What would have to be done, and, and this is exa- and, uh, would be hyssop, which is just a plant that grew in the area. They would break it off and would kill an animal. They'd dip it in blood. They would paint it on the... Uh, the uh, dove itself, and it'd be, it would fly out of the camp, and they would then sprinkle the leper himself with the blood of the hyssop, and then they would do the same thing to his house so as to, ritually speaking, purify them to welcome them back into the camp. Well, in this way, David knows that in his sin that he has been put out of the camp of God. He's, lo- and he's not, if you're united to Christ in one sense, you can't lose communion with God, but certainly when you sin, he can't dwell among unholiness. And so you fall under God's displeasure for a time. 
God's children cannot really be separated from him so long as they're uh, in him, but sin certainly does uh, alter our relationship, at least for a time, and so we are subject to his displeasure and discipline. And that's exactly what we find here and what David needs when he says, purge me with hyssop. He's saying, Lord, I need your cleansing. I need your purification. I need you to make me what I ought to be. And he also wants to know, know the joy and gladness again. If we do not confess our sin, then we do not know the joy and gladness that comes with being found in God. He says in verse 8, make me to hear joy and gladness. If we have not confessed our sin, if we come into church or in communion with anybody else for that matter who profess Christ and we don't have joy, we do need to consider if maybe there is sin in our lives. And if there is sin, well then we need to do exactly what David is doing here in confessing it and repenting from it. We need to know the great deal of pain and grief and sorrow that it causes, not just in our lives, but certainly before a holy God, because he says that my bones you have broken may rejoice. Sin is causing him pain here. Like when you break a bone, I don't know how many of you have. I I'd never have, but I know people who, who certainly have. It does cause a great deal of pain, a great deal of discomfort. You want it taken away in this sense. And so that's what he's asking him to do. But in the other vein, we need, we need to be ashamed for our sins. In verse 9, he says, hide your face from my iniquities. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fall, what, is he, what do they do? They go into the bushes. They clothe themselves with the leaf because they saw that they were naked and what? They were ashamed. Their sin has caused them great, a great deal of shame. So in order for us to really understand the depth and pervasiveness of sin, and being ashamed of it, we can see that shame is really a good thing in a sense. We have to be ashamed of sin. When preachers say today that you don't need to feel shame when you, uh, when you uh, come to church or anything like that because you have been lifted up in grace, well, in a sense that's true, but in another sense that's very misguided because it sees shame as a bad thing. Well, David knows that he has committed a grievous sin, a, a terrible sin, a sin that requires uh, his own death, and so he knows that this is an offense against the Lord of glory of, of a thing which he hates. He's asking the Lord to not only purge it from him, but to hide, it, hide himself from his sin. He's asking him to blot out all of his iniquities. And so in verse 9b, therefore, when he says that, he gets into the aspect of renewal that characterizes the rest of the psalm from 10 to verse 19, that he might be turned from sin and live unto righteousness. He made mention in verse 1 about how God, he was asking God to blot out his transgressions, but he says, blot out my iniquities in this sense. What he's saying here is he's saying, Lord, purge my sin away from me. It hurts. I hate it. Blot it out so that I may be back in your will. May I might dwell in communion with you again, and I might not know your displeasure. Do we have that sense of that when we confess sin? That we have sinned against the thrice holy God, the one who, out of so much grace, sent his son to die for those whom he has called unto himself? Knowing that we were destined for his wrath, that the fact that he saves anybody at all is a sheer, sheer act of grace. 
and that he works faith in us to unite us to his son? That he might, in Christ, we might be righteous, that we might be his children, that we might be holy as he himself is holy? That's what we're turning from when we repent. And he demands it because of his holiness. And so we see that there are a few things that we need to be taken away from this as well. First of all, God will have the whole heart turned from sin. Thomas Watson says, true repentance must have no reserves or inmates. If God turns us, all things shall turn to our good, both mercies and afflictions. We shall taste honey at the end of our rod so that we know that repentance is indeed an evangelical grace. It's for our good. You think of the hymn, Rock of Ages, where it says "All that his tears could not atone for his sin in that hymn. He's saying that it doesn't matter how much he cries before God. All the day, all the night, all the week, for all his years on earth, there's no amount of his tears that can wash away his sin unless it's purged by the blood of the Lamb. And so we need to know that we have to have a clear apprehension of sin and what God requires of us in repentance. It requires us to have sight of it, to acknowledge it, to confess it, to be sorry for it. What it causes, grief and pain, we must hate it, we must be ashamed of it, and we must turn from it that we may enjoy the goodness of God. It is, as the Westminster Confession says, as saving grace that we can turn unto God with full of purpose and endeavor after new obedience. It enables us to do that which he requires of us so that we can kill sin. John Owen says, who's another Puritan that I enjoy reading uh, a great deal, uh, he says, always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. He says this in a great book that he wrote, uh, The Mortification of Sin. And repentance is that tool, is a way in which God helps us to kill sin. We're convicted by the word that what we do, whenever we sin, that it is sin, and that by his spirit we're able to confess it. But how often do we confess it? We must strive to kill sin daily, that we may not be given into it. Thus, repentance must be habitual. It must be a daily habit. Only having killed sin can we live to righteousness. It has to be a daily thing. If in spite of the fact that we've been united to Christ by faith, we are a new creation, we still sin. And we know what sin does. It's, it's an offense before a holy God that requires it to be purged from us. Now, of course, it's not going to be done until we pass into glory one day, but still, it's all the more important that we do it. Because, again, we still do sin. We have to know that whenever we fall into God's displeasure that, that we are indeed suffering a great deal of separation. Our lives depend upon God's good grace. And what a wonderful, magnificent grace that it is. If we're not killing sin daily, 
it will kill us. It will have its way with us. It will chew us up and it will spit us out. That's what Satan would love to do with us each and every day. So unless we are repenting and clinging to Christ by faith, we will not know the benefits which come from our union with Christ. The benefits which we have with union with Christ, therefore, the things that flow from it are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, growth in grace, and perseverance to the end. Sin keeps us from knowing these things. It keeps us from having assurance of God's love. It certainly does keep us from having peace of conscience. It plagues at us. We lose our joy. We are great, our growth in grace is hampered, and we certainly struggle in our walk with Christ. But if we're repenting daily, then we might know these things. We can grow in grace. We can grow in holiness. To one day when the Lord calls us home, whenever that might be, he will make us finally what he has called us to be. And so we repent daily. We repent often. Our walking with Christ will not be a delight for us, therefore, if we are not in this business of killing sin. And David models that very well for us here as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these truths that you have given to us. I pray that it will be a blessing to all those who hear it, that they will see that repentance is for our good. It's not something that you wish to condemn us by necessarily, but that you use it so that we might kill the sin that keeps us from you, so that we might grow closer to you, so that we might know the joy of the Holy Ghost, that we might have peace of conscience, that we might be assured of your love. I pray, Lord, that if there are any in here tonight who do not know you, that you will give them no rest until they find their rest in you, that you will enable them to repent of their sin so that they may trust in you. Oh, Lord, I ask these things in your Son's name and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.